Welcome to the show. You are now part of Reveal, the revenue intelligence podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people success, deal success, and strategy success. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals, and they share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. Hey, Sheena, how's it going? I'm doing pretty good. You're always good week. pretty good. Good week. Always got a smile on your face. <laughs> what about you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. We've been back for a week now. I, I want to say I'm kind of getting back into my morning routine. Life is back to normal. Um, and, and the days are getting longer, I've noticed, because if anyone has listened to the episode with Shep, Shep Maher, uh, he instilled, if not peer pressured me, uh, <laughs> into getting more Peloton rides on in the morning. Yeah. And I have made a habit of it. I've, I've, That's amazing. I've had you keep yeah. me on it. So Mondays and Tuesdays are morning workout days, but I've noticed uh, I get started at like 6.30 on the bike. Mm-hmm. And it used to just be dark the whole time. And now the sun is up by the time I'm done, which is just nice, right? Yeah. We're getting closer to the better weather. It's a little bit easier to wake up. It is. Speaking about working out in the mornings, uh, our conversation with Alex, like I felt like he's a really like grounded, well-rounded, like has his life put together. Self-aware, totally gets it. Yeah, I was like, I'm inspired. I am going to figure out my morning routine and yeah. make this happen. <laughs> yeah, there was there was definitely some parallel. Like I, lo- I also just love when people are saying, hey, I, you know, I, I get up early. He's like, I drink water. He said it in a foreign amount, like 500 milliliters, which <laughs> yeah. I'm like, do I ask what exactly amount that is? No, it just sounds like a healthy <laughs> amount, so we'll roll with it. Um, but yeah, he's like, you know, sound mind, sound body. And then he's just like a super successful guy. So it was kind of like, it it was interesting to get a a slight uh, peek behind the curtain and how he gets his day started. Totally. I think um, this episode is unique. I think Alex brought a really balanced perspective to like, right. You know, showcasing his personal life and like how he has thought through and made some personal decisions. Um, He also has like really great tactical advice for sales reps and how to think about, um, building pipeline and closing deals. Um, and then he's also the head of the diversity and inclusion ERG in EMEA for Twilio. Um, so, you know, again, just really well-rounded and that comes through in the episode for sure. Absolutely. Here's our chat with Alex. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, for those tuning in, we have Alex Elaine, the strategic sales lead in EMEA from Twilio. So awesome to be here, Devin, Sheena. Thanks a lot for having me. Of course, of course. I will go ahead and jump into it and just say you already have at least my favorite accent of all of our guests. Oh, yeah. No offense (laughs) to it. I think Jonathan Frick also had an accent. He did, yes. Jonathan, if you're listening to this, still great. This is just better. (laughs) (laughs) Thank, Thank you so much. Born and bred in the UK, so this is all very much authentic. I I believe it, and honestly, you could have fooled me if it wasn't. (laughs) Uh, Well, we'd like to get started, Alex, with an icebreaker. It's really no shock that I I asked this question pretty much to start, is, you know, what does your morning routine look like? Do you kind of have a go-to thing, or are you just winging it on a daily basis? 
I do actually. The, the main thing that I tend to aim to do is is no phone use for the first thirty minutes of waking up. Oh. So I tend to yeah. get up five hundred milliliters of water. I've got a little exercise routine that helps me kickstart the day. Quick bit of meditation, and then after that thirty minutes, I get my day started. But my mind's right, my body's right, and、uh, it's just a great way to kickstart the day. Personal question. So I've been trying to get into meditation, and I have started and stopped and started and stopped so many、yes. times. Do you have a <laughs> trick or an app or something that you use to get started? I can relate to that. When I when I first started, I was very stop start.、Um, I originally used Headspace, and I recently moved to the the Calm app. I don't know if you guys have heard of that before.、Mm-hmm. Um, that's worked really well, and I just do ten minutes. I don't do anything longer than that, and nothing less. And so it's not too intrusive on the day, but it's enough for me to kind of get that calming effect that I'm I'm looking for. So check out Calm. I'm curious, what time? Do you kind of get the day started? Typically six a.m.、Um, so nothing, nothing crazy, right? But you know, from six till six thirty, I get that routine done, and I look to get out of the house typically about quarter past seven.、Um, so it's kind of you know within an hour and a half, I'm up, done the routine, and out the door forty five minutes later.、Um, that's the typical. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about your current role. Um, at Twilio, as the head of strategic sales for EMEA, for sure. So I'm responsible for for growing and building our base of strategic customers in the UK, mainly by taking the relationships that we have with them from being quite transactional to much more integrated. And of course, I've got a a quota、uh, to be able to deliver on annually in line with that as well. I was one of the the founding members of the EMEA sales team, so I joined as the third sales hire.、Uh, we've got now over sixty. Quota carrying reps in EMEA, and when I think globally, at the time I joined, we were around a 500-person company.、Uh, we're now a fair amount over 3,000, and that's in just over two and a half years.、Uh, so I know that's a lot of、wow. stats, but what I'm ultimately saying is we, we've grown very, very quickly, and it's been a, a roller coaster ride,、um, but learned a ton in the process, which has been great. That's usually the best way to do it, for sure, for sure. So we did a little research, Alex, <laughs> and we see that you gave up or passed on a full scholarship for law school to start a sales career. So I'm curious, you know, what was the you know decision making process that led you to say, you know, what I'm I'm good on the school, not going to go be a lawyer, but hey, sales is for me. At the time, I was offered that scholarship quite a few years ago. Now,、um, I was under the impression that you really had to follow a linear path in life with with very few routes to the top. So I was really expected to be- become Alex the doctor or Alex the lawyer.、Um, I had a good educational profile, and I didn't really have line of sight to any other options in life.、Um, so I kind of took a little bit of time out, and I came to realise that. Really, for me to feel that I was going to lead an impactful life over time, that I'd really need to pursue a career path that I was truly passionate about. And from a young age, I always saw that I had this entrepreneurial flair. You know, I'd set up an eBay store at age thirteen, for example, and you know that kid in the playground buying and selling sweets and all of those kind of things. So. I、uh, I decided at that age that I was going to take the decision to relinquish the scholarship, mainly in order to pursue passions of mine, and, and really sales was always something that I felt really really passionate about and, and connected to, and、uh, you know almost ten years on,、uh, I've never looked back since. As you kind of look back on it, is it 
definitely like a defining moment? Has it shaped maybe kind of like your philosophy with sales, maybe how you coach? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I, I think it has in many ways. When I look back to when I took the decision, I fell into quite a dark time. And then when I got myself out to that, I had this chip on my shoulder, I guess, feeling like I had something to prove. Uh, and, and in a way, what that did is it just made me operate at 200% in everything mm -hmm. that I did because I had this desire to prove to everyone that I'd made the right decision. Uh, and so that actually meant that you know, I, I look now and the impact that it's been able to have now, I think I've got a greater risk appetite. It's, it's committed me to embracing uncomfortable situations, knowing that it's really ultimately going to help me stretch, grow and develop my capabilities. So I think there's a number of things that it's, it's reinforced for me. Um, but again, I, I think it was certainly the best decision that I made for, for myself and my career. I think it can be hard for folks when you feel like, hey, I don't know what I'm doing and if I've made the right decision. And that could be a detriment. So I really admire like how you took that and used it as personal motivation. Thank you so much. And, you know, one, one other point, I guess, to add to that, to kind of come full circle on the story is when I took that decision, I, I always said to myself that I would come back and complete an accreditation. But once I was a lot clearer around, you know, what my career was going to look like um, and actually how it was going to shape my sales career. So actually about two weeks ago now, I did graduate um, with a degree uh, with a first class distinction in sales management. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that kind of, it meant the world to me, to be honest with you, because I, I managed to come full circle and actually completing what I set out to do. Um, but I did it later in life, but I did it in something that I was truly passionate about. So hopefully it sends the message to say, actually, there's many different routes to the same outcome. Um, and that was something that I, I put out on LinkedIn to, to hopefully share that message with others. Well, now if we fast forward a little bit, you've developed your own consulting firm. You're helping others train, uh, you're helping others by training them and coaching, coaching sales professionals. I'm curious, like at what point did it click and you're like, hey, I've mastered sales to the point where I feel confident and comfortable sharing my knowledge? Yeah, again, really interesting one. I, I think as a salesperson, and, and maybe you, you can relate to this, everyone always wants to have the year. And I say the year in inverted commas, but what I mean is that year where you just absolutely crush it, right? Yeah. You know, you blow out your goals, you blow out your numbers, and you just have that year that everyone looks to you and says, hey, you know, this guy's got it. And I think last year was a real culmination in that for me. Um, you know, I'd, I'd achieved many different sales clubs through pretty much all of the roles that I've been in. But last year was a very significant year with, you know, a quarter that was over 500% of, of quotes retainment. Wow. And I think that helped me validate my ability that I could actually use a lot of these experience of transformative deals, transformative quarters, and actually scaling a number of different hyper growth companies um, to make me realize that I could do the same for others. So with all of that said, I think the real defining moment for me was, was getting that number three on LinkedIn top voices late last year mm -hmm. um, to be recognized as the third, third global thought leader when it comes to sales. You know, it's not a small accolade. And I think it really helped me cement the fact that I've got a ton of valuable knowledge and insight that I can share with others and companies to help them scale and achieve their own version of greatness when it comes to sales execution. 
Absolutely. I'm curious as what's kind of been some of the feedback, right? Like I'm sure some people have reached out to you and say, Hey, you know, thanks for helping me with X, Y, Z things. I'm curious if there's maybe been like a theme of a certain type of advice, maybe a certain type of demographic, right? Like, you know, fresh college students or, you know, uh, fresh college grads rather, or sales leaders, like what's kind of been the, I guess your, your popular demo or, or a message that's really resonated. Yeah, I think there's there's two um, two different themes to that. One is I think you just kind of touched on it there, Devin. Is the people that are kind of newer to sales early in career looking to make a fast start and kind of helping them navigate that that year one to be as impactful as they can while also prioritizing learning and development. And the other side has been actually working with entrepreneurs and founders. Um, because what we've seen is that a lot of them get to this particular point where they, they even maybe get to six figures in, in run rate revenue through referrals and word of mouth and, and just maybe their pre-existing network. And then a lot of them hit this brick wall where because they, they haven't taken the time or, or simply haven't had the expertise to understand what successful sales execution looks like. They hit this brick rule where they can't get from that kind of six figures to maybe seven figures in run rate revenue. And they need that systemization and the processes and the foundation to help them understand how do I actually implement processes that are going to set me up for scale and start to build, um, you know, a revenue machine that's going to make them, you know, one of the next unicorns, for example. So I've kind of seen those two different strands and that's really where I've been playing the most recently. So Alex, you work at Twilio's uh, EMEA office in London, um, which is halfway around the world from their headquarters, which is here in the Bay Area. So I'm curious how you manage ties with the headquarters uh, of the company and any specific tips that you have for reps who may not be working at headquarters? I think that the first thing is to, to proactively be the person that creates or champions a bridge between yourself and actually the company's HQ. So when I think about my role at Twilio, um, one of the things that I do is I lead one of our regional employee resource groups, which forces a collaboration with the global employee resource group leads Mm -hmm. and that gives me a regular cadence with the international teams um, almost in a in a lens that's slightly different to my my day-to-day role Um, but what it means is that as I say there's that regular cadence there's those touch points and it helps kind of broaden my reach to the global org I think the other thing is to, to be proactive in seeking out career sponsors internationally So I've got a a four to six week cadence with a couple of our our global leaders, Mm -hmm. including our our global SVP of sales who supports me with kind of career guidance and and, and advice with navigating key decisions. But that wasn't something that landed on my desk. You know, that was something I had to be proactive, make the ask and actually go out there to ensure that, you know, my my name is visible and, and heard in those, you know, C-suite conversations or, you know, during those broader meetings, you know, these aren't things that just happen. You've got to go and make it happen. Um, so I think the, the main message through all of that is to be proactive and be the person to create the bridges and channels. That's amazing. I like the, you know, that you touched on be proactive. Yeah. You can't just wait for something to fall in your lap because that's pretty much never going to happen. Do you have any tips on like how you identified who those sponsors for you should be and how did you ask them? 
Yeah, I mean, I've been fortunate in a sense in that I, I've been to San Francisco and HQ a fair few times. Um, but again, a lot of that has come from, you know, where, for example, we have our global uh, our global signal conference, which is kind of our big band conference for all of our customers. And to go, it's based on selling enough tickets, in essence, and driving enough attendance. So I always make sure that I'm top of that leaderboard and secure myself a place there. And I think there's a lot of opportunities like that in many different companies to um, to, to prove yourself, right? To, to go out, deliver, drive attendance, uh, be proactive in, in in actually showing that you deserve a place to, to make the trip and that you're going to make that trip a valuable use of time. And by doing that, of course, you can't really beat FaceTime, right? You know, when you're in front of uh, in front of these people and get to meet your leaders and, and the wider team, it's a great opportunity to build relationships. So every time I go over to San Francisco, I, I create meetings in advance, often with people that I haven't had a chance to meet. And so it means when I go over, I've already got a full diary meeting various different people across many different departments. And so again, it keeps connecting back to being proactive. But again, it's, it's about actually doing the activity that gives people a reason to, 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 you know, to put you in that environment or to give you the chance to, you know, get in front of those regional leads and um, create those bridges. You recently wrote an article on LinkedIn, which was about the secret to sales, and you really underscored the importance of value selling instead of feature selling and feature dumping. So I'm curious, how do you take that and make it real, especially for a really technical uh, product and a complex uh, sales process like uh, at a company like Twilio? You know, one of the things that I, I highlighted in the article was the fact that very simply, a customer buys when they perceive more value in your offering than its cost. So that's kind of surmising things in a, in a simple format. But to your point of, you know, how do we make that a little bit more real? And so when we look at a complex proposition such as Twilio's, it's really important to first of all understand who are all of the key influencers and the key stakeholders that are involved in the sale and kind of start in there. And then going on to spend time to deep dive their priorities creating a business case around actually connecting Twilio's proposition to the areas in which they derive value. So again, you know, making that a little bit more simple, you know, who are the movers and the shakers in their account, in the account, what do they prioritize? And then how can we think about creating a business case that connects what we do as a company to what they derive value from? That's almost kind of your, your milestones. And then talking to these points, it's important to make them quantifiable business outcomes that are really going to move the needle for those stakeholders. So not just we can save you money, but let's make that quantifiable, right? How much, how, you know, by what percentage are we going to make that improvement on the bottom line? And, you know, if I'm ever in a sales cycle and there's, there's some heavy objections, the, the signaling that would always go off to me is that I just haven't created enough value. There's, there's not enough perceived value in the transaction. So it's a signal to say, you know, you need to go back and actually revert to your sales process and that initial discovery to identify gaps. And, of course, um, you know, spend a little bit more time rebuilding the business case to make sure that they're connected to their stakeholders' priorities. That's interesting. So That's a deal, advice. a deal is not linear. Like you go mm -hmm. back and forth and, um, 
there are times when you need to step back and reevaluate exactly where you are. Exactly. I think it's critical, right? You know, being able to to stay, take a step back, not only on your losses, but also your wins. Mm-hmm. You know, we could the marginal gains are, are key here. And often even with a win, you know, I'm looking at thinking, well, well, how could I have um, reduced the time to close? You know, so it's not just about because we won, we, we celebrate and we don't look back and reflect. Um, there's always an opportunity to reflect, to refine and deliver a better outcome the next time around. What I love about Alex's advice is that it's backed by numbers. He prefers team selling because it's proven to work. Here's some data that's straight from the Gong Labs team who analyzed more than 53,000 sales calls. Team selling means bringing just one other person from your team onto a sales call. With team selling, you may be 258% more likely to close a deal than if you fly solo. That's a pretty shocking leap. Most commonly, this is sales reps bringing in senior leadership to help close a late stage deal. But to take it to the next level, consider bringing in your organization's experts to sell and win as a team. In a trust barometer survey, 65% of respondents said experts were the most credible sources of information. Here's how you can tap into experts in your own company. Tap into CS experts if you have questions about the onboarding process. Engage your IT or security lead if you want to make sure security standards are up to par. And finally, pull in solutions engineers early, especially if you have their technical counterparts on a call. If you play as a team, you're more likely to win. It's that simple. If you want to learn more about how to get to that astounding 258%, you'll find the link to the article in the show notes. I'll shoot the question to you. I'm curious because you, you kind of just touched on it. I think, uh, and I'm curious for your take. This is going to be an opinion here, Alex. But like a lot of times, at least I've had it happen to me and salespeople hate when the prospect says, you know, usually towards the end of a call, hey, Alex, let us, let us talk internally and get back to you. Or, hey, let us think about it a little more. And I think what ends up happening is that's usually the outcome of like driving next steps or trying to move, move towards a closing motion, right? Uh-huh. And you get the like, eh, we're not really, like you're basically hearing, eh, we're not really there yet. And that can be frustrating sure. as a salesperson because then, at least in my mind, I start rewinding my call in my head and go, where did I miss? Like, what did I not hit on hard enough? So I'm curious sure. to you based on kind of the, the process and the strategy you just laid out, like wh- if you hear that ever, What's kind of your go-to? What do you what do you do either on that call or how do you re-strategize offline and, and kind of loop it back? Yeah, I think one of the really interesting things is that we sometimes miss the power of actually just asking the customer or asking the prospect why they have that view or why they have that perception. And the amount of times I've I've put that to a rep and they've kind of looked at me blankly in a way, but I said, have, have you actually asked the customer why they feel that way or why that that's their current perception and the responses can be very powerful actually when you just ask why so step one for me is always to just very simply ask that question and you know there's often an opportunity to then take that answer and say you know either if you were in my position or if you were able to reframe this what could I, should I, or what could I or should I have done differently to potentially drive another outcome at this particular time in the cycle? And actually by getting that direct feedback from the customer, typically you're going to get a steer as to where you've fallen short and actually get that kind of pointer as to where you can go back and re-strategize to, to move the needle. Um, so I, I think that that conceptually is all really, really powerful. Beyond that, 
I think it connects back to actually having a process and a plan of action in the first place. And we often have this saying of what you can't measure, you can't manage. And you've got to manage your business in the same way that you, you're going to manage an account, you're going to manage a sales cycle. And if you're not following a process and you haven't got milestones and floodgates and, and pieces along the the sales process that you can look back on to say, have I done this? Have I missed this? Have I hit this 100%? Have I only done it 50%? It's going to be really difficult for you to look back on where you've actually fallen short. So what I like to be able to do is if I've gotten to that point and I've realized that something's fallen stagnant, I need to look back on my process to say, actually, you know, did I effectively go ahead and qualify what their decision-making criteria was? And not did, not did I under, just understand it, but did I truly understand it? And if I see that I only did that 50%, that should stand out to me that that's the area I need to go back and spend time on. So I think there's two different plays here, asking the question and then reverting back to your process mm -hmm. uh, to, to make sure that you can identify the gaps and refine. Does yeah. that make sense? What I've said yeah, there? absolutely. It, it sounds like clarity is the key here, both clarity in the objection and then enough clarity in your sales process to kind of bridge that gap. Yes. Yes. On the money. Perfect. Shifting gears slightly here, something that again, salespeople struggle with. And I think that leaders also struggle to manage is balancing your time between getting deals in the funnel versus moving deals forward that are already in the pipeline. How do you approach that task? Yeah, it's again an interesting one. I think the first thing to say is that there's never an end point when it comes to pipeline generation. You know, my view is that it really should remain a, a daily priority for any salesperson. And we're really fortunate in this era in that there's there's a multitude of different tools available. We've got phone, we've got email, there's social. Um, so I think it's a lot easier than it's ever been before to balance efforts across multiple platforms. So I don't think there's a defined split between PG activity and deal optimization. I think it's taking the time to understand your business, as I kind of alluded to in the previous answer, to know what deals are where, where deals and what deals are currently slipping through the funnel. And once you really understand where you have gaps, you can you then need to invest the time in optimizing in these areas while continuing to always have that cadence of investing in a new stream of leads at the same time. So instead of ABC, always be closing, Alex is saying ABP, always be prospecting. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a trademark on that yes. now, Deb. So, uh... <laughs> and, and then when it comes to the deals in pipeline, right, that those are, I would say, most important because they're closer to the finish line. Feel free to challenge mm -hmm. there. What do you, like, how do you determine which of those opportunities you should prioritize for your team? And how do you know which ones are real? Yeah, so I think it's important to have a, a qualification criteria. You know, you need to have a bar and, and a set of characteristics to define whether you should or shouldn't be investing more time or moving on. Um, so, you know, there's tons of different um, criteria out there. You know, BANT, for example, is, is one that's quite popular and I think can work quite well at various different points in a sales cycle just to understand if you should be qualifying in or out. You know, budget, authority, time need um you know if you've got a, a general concise understanding across those four things 
you should then be able to have enough information to know, should we be investing time here? Is this a truly qualified lead? Or actually, is this something that we should nurture in the funnel and invest more time in later down the line? And then on the pipeline generation side of things, how do you best work with marketing in determining like what is, what should marketing be doing? What should you be doing? And how are you best uh, working together on that? It goes back to, to that stakeholder management point I touched on, even when it comes to customers. I think often we don't always take the time to understand what successful PG activity looks like for both departments. You know, I see quite often sales and marketing operating quite independently. So they've got their own lens on actually what an, an effective process and, and how to define and measure success when it comes to PG generation, uh, pipeline generation. So I think it's taking the time to, to actually learn and understand the other department's perspective, mm-hmm. what they prioritize and why they prioritize it and then getting aligned on a unified model of model for execution. I'm always curious too, is what are some of the unanswered questions that your team is working on and how is data helping you answer it, if at all? Yes, it's, it's, I think we're always in this position where we're seeking to, to optimize. And I use that term marginal gains previously. And some of the things that you know, we tend to spend a lot of time on our closing ratio, time to close, time to advance a sales stage, and actual funnel leakage. And these are some of the things that aren't always the, the de facto, but I think are the, the points that are starting to become really important in how do we make those marginal improvements that can really move the needle and have a compounding effect across a, a, a a scaling team so you know when we think about time to advance for example at a sales stage that's quite an interesting one right because it's it's how do we get from the point of you know technical validation to maybe um you know commercials and and moving to a a stage where we're negotiating a deal and we sometimes see transactions that, that get quite stagnant at a technical validation point so we're trying to understand what systems what resource which specialists could we potentially bring in to help expedite that and ultimately have an impact on the overall time to close um so these are some of the data points that are becoming important to us at the moment that's really interesting. Is there any, uh, any recent successes you can say, hey, I kind of cracked the code on this one part recently? Yeah, I think as an organization, Twilio have, have invested a lot more in our specialist function. Um, so actually having specialist resource for particular products that maybe have a, a, a require a, a deeper level of understanding to really convince a customer that they should have confidence in moving forward there. And what we've seen is actually bringing specialists in at particular points, pivotal points in a deal cycle can actually reduce our time on that point of technical validation that I touched on. And of course, by reducing the gap on the tech validation, it reduces the overall time to close and helps us bring in transactions with more velocity. Coming back to one of the things that you brought up early in the conversation, the diversity and inclusion uh, group, um, you're currently the lead for EMEA. Um, and yes. I'm curious to know a little bit about um, kind of how you got involved with this group and what are some of the leading issues or opportunities that you're, you're focused on uh, as a team? One of the things coming into to, to Twilio, you know, as I mentioned, the third sales hire, we were still really in our infancy as an organization in terms of actually understanding 
you know, what it would take to be a, a business that could operate at scale and actually continue to maintain standards of excellence across all parts of the business. And so diversity and inclusion, we had a phenomenal leader in place, LaFawn Davis, who um, was so passionate about driving forward that agenda. And as a part of a global tour, she came over to London and we had a great conversation about what we could do um, in EMEA. Mm-hmm. to help move the needle there and, and actually drive a broader initiative that the company has to get to 50% women and 30% underrepresented people by 2023. Great. And that's a published goal for Twilio. And so I think I was quite fortunate to be, a, I am fortunate to be a part of an organization that, that has that level of commitment and is willing to actually publish that to hold ourselves accountable. Yes. And that yes. really gave me the opportunity to to take that momentum and start to really champion the cause over here in EMEA. So there's a number of different phenomenal initiatives that we've already done and we're really, really excited for for 2020 as well to continue to work towards those broader goals. That's amazing. Um, I wanted to know of the initiatives that you have uh, put into place to date, is there any one or two that you could specifically point to that... You fa- your team found to be the most successful? Yes, I would say an, an initiative called After Hours. It's called Twilio After Hours. Um, and again, it started as a real grassroots initiative. And what we seek to do is, is bring the community in to create a safe space from which we can have authentic conversations, typically with a focus often on a uh, either a particular underrepresented demographic or a gender profile or even a personality type. And we seek to bring those communities in, um, create kind of panel sessions and, and, and create conversation, which one certainly helps um, people to feel that they, they get a sense of connectedness with Twilio as an employer and actually that Twilio is somewhere where they can, um, you know, be their authentic self mm-hmm. um, and actually have the opportunity to, to rise through the ranks without any kind of um, ceiling to their potential. Um, but it also has uh, this, this great community effect, right, where we saw from the After Hours London event we did and there's a highlight video on YouTube, actually it has this compound effect on the community where it really helps bring this this sense of uplifting the community and making people feel that actually there's this opportunity to to drive a positive narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've seen great, great success from these events and after hours, we've now delivered them in, in New York, in Atlanta, all over the globe with one coming up in Bogota as well in Colombia. Was there anything that you have learned um, from this group that was maybe surprising or unexpected? Yeah, I think coming in, that there's a number of misconceptions when it comes to really what defines diversity and inclusion and who can connect with the program. So I kind of saw that there was this perception that DNI only really relates to people of color or people who identify with a particular gender. When in fact, when we, we talk about the word inclusion, mm-hmm. it accounts for giving everyone in the company that sense of belonging, including different personality types. So whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, for example, it's important that everyone has that sense of belonging and connectedness with the organization. So a misconception to me was that, you know, that there are these silos and only those silos can almost be a part and, and be a part of moving the needle, when in fact it's about everyone. 
You know, mm-hmm. it's about giving everyone in the company a voice and a feeling that they belong within the company. Do you have any recommendations for small companies who maybe don't have a formal diversity and inclusion program of things that they could be doing to just get on the, you know, on the path to ensuring that folks feel like they're welcome and part of this organization that they're building? I think the first thing is it starts with with having the passion for it. So if you've got a passion, I think seek out the people that have some experience with doing this. So if you do have a global DNI leader, and if you don't, seek out another one at another company. Educate yourself on what they do, why they do it, you know how the ecosystem works, and then take that knowledge and understanding and and, and bring it to your own company. Um, one of the things I've been fortunate enough to get involved with is, you know, a number of DNI kind of led. Um, employee resource groups for other tech companies. So a couple of weeks ago, I was at a roundtable with with Facebook and Snapchat and Amazon and all of the other, you know, larger corporates. And for us as a, a, an aspirational corporate, I got a ton of ideas around what these bigger companies are doing to say, hey, you know, guys, we should be doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, Facebook are doing phenomenal things. Um, and I was able to, to learn from that and, and bring that back to our team to say, hey, guys, let's make this a part of our 2020 roadmap. So, again, goes back to that word pro- being proactive, right? Yep, yep. Thanks for that. So now we'll move into some of our final wrap-up questions. Uh, what do you think is the most important skill that sales leaders should be focusing on this year? I think I've got maybe a little bit of a curveball. I'm going to say mindset empowerment. There's a real rise in, in burn rates in sales. This mm-hmm. is something I've, I've seen, especially over the last year or so. And I think sales leaders need to, to move the needle a little bit and actually work with their teams to understand how they can help people get their mind right um, and, and develop a level of resiliency so that they can not only stay the course, but continue to, to operate at, you know, 110% consistently. Um, and, and, and I think we could be doing more around actually empowering the minds of sales teams so that they feel happy, healthy, and again, they're able to stay the course over time. Maybe we should be recommending folks to be doing more meditation every day. <laughs> I was going to say that. I think so. There might be a correlation there. Alex, here's a question we ask all of our guests. How would you describe sales in one word? I'm going to say passion. Nice. Mm. Passion. No one has said passion no said so passion. far. Yeah. There you go. And the only two people we had <laughs> that, that matched came from the same company, so there must be something going on in the water. That. Terrific. That's a wrap, Alex. It was uh, really great to have this conversation with you. Hey, thank you, Alex. I had a great time. Thank you so much for having me, guys, and uh, look forward to uh, getting some feedback from the listeners. All right. Until next time. See ya. Take care. Bye. Every week we bring you a micro action. It can be something to think about or an action you put into play today. This week we're going to look at the pretty impressive morning routine that Alex brought up. It's worth noting that most successful people have one. I want you to think about what you can steal from Alex's routine to prep for your day and bring your A game to your team. Choose something from one of these two packages, getting right with your body or getting right with your mind. Body-wise, consider doubling down on the stuff you've heard before. Drink plenty of water, especially right when you wake up, stretch, and fuel up on something healthy to kick off the day. Also, remember that your mind will perform better if you start your day with more quiet time. Consider avoiding your phone during the wake-up phase, which can last up to 30 minutes. 
Instead, do a brief meditation. You could try using Alex's preferred app, Calm, which I'm actually using now, or Headspace, which Devin can vouch for. And here's the important bit. Don't take on everything at once. Pick one or two small changes, knowing that tiny habits are the key to really deep change. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.